I can't remember if I cried when I heard about how his house elf lied, but something touched me deep inside the day that Padfoot died. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for a lonely teenage Bronkenbuck with a pink carnation and a pickup truck. The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord approaches. Born to those who have thrice defied him, born as the seventh month dies, and the Dark Lord will mark him as his equal. But he will have power the Dark Lord knows not, and either must die at the hand of the other, for neither can live while the other survives. The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord will be born as the seventh month dies. I'm Heather Price, right? And I'm Alex Dallenberg. And we fucking made it to the end of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. We are reading this week the chapters called The Lost Prophecy and The Second War Begins. In this podcast, you will hear references to dated rock and roll songs (laughs) spoilers and cursing you will also hear some adult themes this week's adult themes are american pie by don mclean (laughs) systemic oppression guilt trips job interviews image rehab and unveiled threats alex oh my god what happened this week? You sent me so many American Pie lyrics based read on. Do you some of them? Well, here's one. Drove my Chevy to the levee, then remembered I can fly. That one was good. That's pretty There's good. There's better ones, though. Did you write the book of spells? And do you have faith wizards don't go to hell? Because Sir Nicholas told you so. Well, for 16 years, he's been on his own because his guardians had hearts of stone. And that's how it'll always be. Helter skelter in the summer night, the festrals bore our heroes to the flight. Can only see them if you're sad. Harry, he had lost his dad, and everything just makes him mad. Eight miles high, and this plan is bad. Well, the house elf went to the king and queen, and a tea cozy, not even clean. And he said, I have some intel that you need. It's good. That's pretty good. Maybe the singing is bad, though. We're going very weird, Al. And the man that I cannot abide, the black dog blinded by his pride, he made a joke and then he died. The day, I can't rhyme, died with died, fuck. I fucked myself (laughs) on that one. That's pretty good. I probably would have said moss grows fat on a philosopher's stone, but... You're better. Maybe that's too literal. You're better at this overall, but the thing that drives me nuts is that you don't care about syllable count. I do. I care so much more about syllable count. On a sorcerer's stone, rolling stone, sorcerer. Yeah, sorcerer's stone. Okay, fine. Meter. Moss grows fat on a sorcerer's stone. That doesn't work. Yeah, it does. It does. Okay, sorcerer's Sorcerer's stone. stone. Okay. Do you not know how to clap the syllables? I mean, I can. Abracadabra. Avada Kedavra. That has more syllables than abracadabra. Okay, fine. So is... we're in second grade now. <laughs> Clapping syllables. Um, What happened this week? <laughs> now I'm just thinking about American Pie, um, which you know way better than me. 
I know um, every word. Not that that's cool. That's actually supremely uncool. But yes, in addition to knowing the prologue to the Canterbury Tales, I know every word of American Pie. Dang, Because dude. I'm a fucking dork. You're basically a PhD in English. <laughs> Go ahead. In this week's chapters, Harry is portkeyed back to Dumbledore's office. He's basically just got some dead time that... Oh, poor choice of words. Um... He's got some downtime in Dumbledore's office to just sit with his horrible feelings. He paces around. Phineas Nigellus says some snarky things. Eventually, Dumbledore gets back from telling Fudge what to do. And Harry basically goes berserk. He starts throwing Dumbledore's like shit everywhere. He starts throwing his weird silver instruments against the wall and breaking them. And I, I presumably they're expensive. Basically, I mean, Harry's just letting all his emotions out. Dumbledore says a really fucking zen thing, though. <laughs> he goes, by all means, continue to break my possession. I probably have too many as it is. So Dumbledore is your mom? Sorry, mom, but yeah, a little bit. Basically. No, that's a good thing. Oh, that's true. She hates possessions. Dumbledore's just into... Dumbledore's like in his Marie Kondo moment My here. mom Kondo. is absolutely like the original 15 years before Marie Kondo. Marie Kondo. <laughs> Kondo. I don't know how to say it. Yeah, decluttering. So Dumbledore's like, I was going to declutter anyway. Go <laughs> ahead. Throw my weird silver like toys out um harry's like super pissed because of i don't know everything that's happened to him in the last five books dumbledore says look harry i know you're mad i don't harry says some like nihilistic stuff he's like i don't care about anything i don't even want to be a human anymore dumbledore yeah. says that's not true you do care but you should be way more angry at me than you are even right now so holy shit dumbledore's about to get into it Dumbledore says, sit down and let me basically explain everything that's happened to you uh, in this book. So, Wolf, this is going to be this is going to be really hard to recap without, like, repeating Dumbledore's whole monologue. But the long and short of it, well, mostly the long of it is <laughs> <laughs> that where should I even start with this? Let's get this out of the way first. We learned that Creature fucked over the Order of the Phoenix when Sirius told him to get out around Christmas time, he took it literally and then went straight to the Malfoys, Narcissa Malfoy is a cousin of Sirius, and started informing about the order to them, although he couldn't give away where their headquarters was because that was protected by the, um, I forget the name of the charm, but that awesome charm. The, like, the secret keeper. The super thing. secret charm. So Creature informed Lovo and company that Sirius could be used to get to Harry. So when Harry showed up in the fire in Grimold Place, Creature lied to him and said that Sirius was at the Ministry of Magic when he wasn't. Creature was able to lie to Harry because he technically didn't work for Harry. Um, so that's how that happened. Dumbledore says that he blames himself for not being more open with Harry, but the reason that he wasn't telling Harry anything was because he was afraid that Voldemort would invade his brain and basically use him to spy on Dumbledore. It's very narcissistic of Dumbledore. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, Dumbledore's got some top secret shit going on. I know. He also, like, 
explains, I mean, this is obvious, but maybe we should just confirm, like, it was a trap. Yes, that it was Voldemort a trap. planted that dream in Harry's mind yeah. to lure him. So, also, Dumbledore says, okay, there's this thing that I haven't been telling you that maybe I should have told you when you first came to Hogwarts. So Dumbledore winds up into this whole long story, which turns into a clip show of Harry's various adventures and Dumbledore finding excuses not to tell Harry about basically the prophecy. Dumbledore says, I would do anything for love. I'd run right into hell and back. I would do anything for love. I'd never lie to you, and that's a fact. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. But then he does. You hate that. I mean, it's pretty good. <laughs> I was listening to a lot of, like, 70s and 80s playlists before this episode, so that's, like, all in the brain. That's, like, where your head is at? It is. So, uh... I so, uh, Dumbledore quotes Meatloaf to Harry and then says, But I am going to do that now because the time has come for me to tell you that there was this prophecy given to me by Sybil Trelawney. Oh, the prophecy, it turns out, was from Trelawney. They were meeting for a job interview in the room above the Hogshead, which Trelawney chose because it was, like, cheap. He literally says that. Yeah. So, I, there was a great, like, shot in a beer special at the Hogshead. Uh, which is a it's joke like I think we've used. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And I like fire whiskey. Yeah. And uh, Dumbledore kind of gave her this interview as a courtesy. And he was about to dismiss her. But then as he was leaving, she broke into this prophecy about how I won't. I'll probably play a clip of the prophecy later in this episode, but basically the one with the power to destroy the Dark Lord is coming. He's going to be born as the seventh month dies and the Dark Lord will mark him as his equal, uh, but he'll have power the Dark Lord knows not, and uh, neither can live while the other survives. So basically, but 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 motherfucking Harry Potter has to kill Lord Voldemort and or vice versa for this whole thing to get resolved. And somebody was listening in on the prophecy and only told Voldemort half of it. So Voldemort, that's why he wanted he wanted to find out the rest of the prophecy because, of course, he went to go find Harry Potter to stop the prophecy from being true, and that's when he got his shit wrecked. So this whole fucking book, Voldemort has been looking for, like, the second half of a tweet. <laughs> Wait, you have to explain who the other person could be. Also, like, fate chose Harry Potter kind of through Voldemort because there was another child born at the end of the seventh month whose parents had, like, defied Voldemort and, like, met all the other criteria in this prophecy, and that was Neville Longbottom. But, uh, I guess Voldemort just kind of, like, rolled a dice or something and picked one. He picked Harry because he reminded him of himself, because Harry was a half-blood, and Neville was from this, like, old pure-blood family. But Harry, of course, survived, because Dumbledore says, of course, love. Harry says, what's love got to do got to do with it what's love but a secondhand emotion is that the lyric yeah wow i have never understood the second line of that <laughs> harry says it's who needs a love? heart when a heart can be broken what's love but a secondhand emotion yeah what does that mean i don't know that is not a meaningful lyric <laughs> i thought it was something about what's love it can't help you anymore 
I don't know. What's love? It can't help you. I, there's like multiple there's lyrics that they kind of like they play. I don't know. Second-hand emotion. That doesn't seem true. So anyway, Harry says, "What's love got to do with it?" Dumbledore says, "Love's got everything to do with it." The Ministry of Magic has a locked room where I guess they keep love. What the fuck does that mean? I, I, he's Baltimore, like, I mean, Dumbledore, you are just not being helpful. He says it's a little old place that we can get together. It's the love shack in the Alex, Ministry of Magic. Literally, shut up. <laughs> shut your damn I told mouth. you. I was just listening. I listened to all these chapters and then I like booted up Spotify. Anyway, fuck. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> These are actually really brutally sad chapters. So they really are. Maybe so I gotta you had like, to listen to all this like. I gotta lighten it up. Yeah. Like maybe. power ballads. Exactly. So, yeah, love protects Harry. His love, like Lily's love, left like you know an imprint on Harry as we all know. But it was like in her bloodline, so that allowed Dumbledore to hide Harry with his blood relatives. Petunia, of course. So as long as he's in Petunia's care and is able to call that a home, he'll be protected against Lord Voldemort. So, I, I don't know. Dumbledore says, you know, the power of love, it's a curious thing. Makes one man weep and another man sing. I don't even know that That's song. Huey Lewis in the news. Oh. Dumbledore tells Harry, don't need money, don't take fame, don't need no credit card to ride this train. It's strong and it's sudden and it's cruel sometimes. But it might just save your life. And that's the power of love. Is that the actual lyric? Yeah, it might just save your life. Damn. And that's the power of love. That is on the nose. On the nose. So J.K. Rowling was rocking out to Huey Lewis in the news when she wrote this chapter, I assume. Or Dumbledore listened to it at some point. That would be accurate. It was written in the 80s. So yeah, love saves Harry Potter. And uh, we get some confirmation that that's what helped break Voldemort's, like, possession of him. So, yeah, love, like, makes the world go round and, like, buys the world a Coke or whatever. And, like, conquers uh, all and yeah. shit. Um, <laughs> what's next? But above all these is love. Yes. So, also Dumbledore says... And that's why I didn't make you prefect this year, because I thought you had a lot of shit to deal with. That's such a weird aside. Like, <laughs> that is the last. And that's what Harry makes him Potter. cry. That's what makes Dumbledore cry. But it's not the prefecting that makes no, him I cry. No, I know. The He's thing just that makes like, him cry is like, you've got shit. so much shit going on. Oh my god, it's all my fault. Yeah. Which uh, like word. So anyway, fast forward. Everybody's in the hospital wing because they got this shit wrecked in the last chapter. The Daily Prophet is now done a 180 on Harry Potter and is reporting about how the Dark Lord's back and Harry Potter is amazing and persevered through all the haters and the doubters uh, and shit like that. Ron is just eating a shit ton of candy throughout all of this. Uh, Harry is of course very fucking depressed because his godfather Sirius Black is dead. There's this really good description of what it feels like to be grieving, which is he's just like, every time I'm around people, I just want to escape. And every time I'm alone, all I want is to be like around people. I just found that really compelling. It was, yeah, that was poignant. He goes down to Hagrid's hut. Hagrid's back, by the way. He's like digging up some runner beans. That doesn't really help him much. Hagrid tells him, this is how Sirius would have wanted to die. And Harry's like, he didn't fucking want to die. Yeah. <laughs> 
Which, like, disagree, but fine. Uh, Harry runs into Draco and Crab and Goyle. Draco's like, you're gonna pay for what you did to my dad. I'm gonna get you. Uh, Harry says, I've literally fought Lord Voldemort. So whatever, come at me, bro. Harry is packing up. Still very sad. He finds the package that Sirius gave him earlier in the book, which is what he was supposed to use when he wanted to communicate with Sirius. How did he not think to use to open this package? So annoying. What are you doing, Harry? Oh, such an oversight. But, you know, Harry's like hot-tempered or whatever. Uh, hot-blooded. And so he opens the package. It's a two-way mirror that they're supposed to communicate with. He asks to see Sirius, but of course it shows him nothing because Sirius is dead. It's like the Beauty and the Beast mirror, which is, But it doesn't fucking work. Yeah. Well, um, it doesn't work beyond death. Show me the beast. So that that's a bummer. Then Harry's like, oh, I'll never see Sirius again. And then he thinks, wait a second, ghost exists. <laughs> He runs out uh, to find. I keep laughing. This part is it's so, so sad. Depressing. It's so sad. So sad. Unrelentingly sad. He goes out. He finds Sir Nick. He says, "Can Sirius come back as a ghost?" Sir Nick has clearly had this discussion many, many times before, but nevertheless, they have a spirited conversation. Shut up. <laughs> it's actually not that spirited. It's quite doleful. Sir Nick says. Only wizards can come back as ghosts, but it's only, like, only a few of us decide to linger. Most people choose to move on, and I really don't know shit about what happens in the afterlife because I chose to stay here because I fear death, and I probably made a mistake because I miss eating food, basically. Uh, I mean, not really, but, you know, he, he he's not satisfied with his half-existence on Earth. So, that sucks. Harry feels like Sirius has been taken from him twice. And, yeah, cry now, cry later, cry forever, basically. Harry doesn't really feel like joining everybody at the feast. And then he runs into Luna, who is putting up wanted posters for all her stuff. People are, like, constantly nicking her stuff because she's not very popular. And Harry feels bad. Luna asks him about Sirius, and they have a discussion about basically death. Harry asks her why she can see Thestrals. Luna shares that her mother died when she was nine years old, and she saw it. She was, like, experimenting with some spell. And Luna says, I get sad about it sometimes, but I know that I'll see her again. And Harry says, how do you know that? And she says, couldn't you hear the voices behind the veil in the Department of Mysteries? And Harry doesn't really know what to do with that. But, and he thinks to himself, Luna believes, like, so many extraordinary things and he doesn't really know what to make of it but he knows in that moment that he feels much better so also we learn that Cho has moved on she's now dating Michael Corner so and Jenny's dating Dean Thomas once upon a time Harry was falling in love but now he's only falling apart there's nothing he can do it is a total Total, it's a total eclipse of his heart yeah Yeah, it's awful uh he's living in a powder keg and giving off sparks you know all these lyrics that i so so many uh (laughs) harry boards the hogwarts train going anywhere and everybody heads back to king's cross but when he gets there he's met by the other members of the order of the phoenix who tell 
Petunia and Uncle Vernon that they better be nice to Harry or else they'll hear from the Order. So Harry is feeling heartened by the fact that all these other witches and wizards have his back and he heads off back to number four, Privet Drive. And that's what happens in this week's chapters. Yo, so we made it to the end. Can you believe it? Um... Yes, I can believe it. I mean, it's not its not literally <laughs> unbelievable. Um, isn't there like an Onion News Network literally unbelievable the, series? No, there's a website. It's like a Tumblr or something where they share people reacting to Onion stories as if they're real. Oh. People are like, people mistake them for real news. God, and they always say, this is literally, unbe- they often say, this is literally unbelievable. Well, it is... Neither literally nor figuratively unbelievable that we made it to the end of this book, but there were moments when it felt like it would never happen. Did you find this book longer than Goblet of Fire? No, nothing's longer than Goblet of Fire. I Goblet think this of book Fire is felt- technically longer than Goblet of Fire. I know, Fire. but Goblet of Fire felt like it lasted ten lifetimes. <laughs> I felt like I became old and was born again ten times while reading that fucking book. Fox was born ten times while reading that book, probably. While living that book. Yeah. I don't know how long his life cycle is. I don't know. It seems like... This is probably in, like, Fantastic Beasts or some bullshit. Don't at us. (laughs) So we have a more thorough rendering of Harry's response to Sirius's death. And I'm going to revise some HP Dub's hot takes. It's obviously very sad. It's incredibly sad. These last two chapters are gutting. Oh my god, Harry's grief is like, yeah, just cuts right through you. And yeah, it's it's sad that Sirius dies. I, somebody tweeted at us that they really disagree with our take on Sirius and that if the Dementors are our kind of stand-in for depression, then Sirius suffered from horrible depression for years and years and years. And it's amazing he hung out as long as he did. And I agree with that. And I think one of the things that I responded and that I've been thinking about is... Sirius bugs me partly because he kind of reminds me of myself where you're just like just fucking hang on like figure it out and that's like a voice that's turned inward in me a lot of the time so I that was some soul searching that I did but mostly it's sad because it ruins Harry's life again yeah it's interesting because this is Harry's first real experience with raw and immediate grief like he's always lived with the fact that his parents are dead, you know, but he didn't know them. He's really sad about it, but I don't want to say he's more sad about Sirius, but it's a different, it has a different character to it, you know? Harry sort of mourns never knowing his parents, and he knew Sirius rather well, so this is the first person he's really lost. And I mean, you know, he was frenemies with Cedric, and yeah, that's he totally gr- different. Like he mourned that loss really intensely. But that was more for the trauma of it, right? That was more kind of witnessing it. With Sirius, it is losing like the day to day access to guardianship and companionship and someone that he loves, right? And this is an interesting thing about sorry spoilers for like cursed child. It's interesting that in Rowling's thinking of Harry's character development, his grief and regret over Cedric's loss, like, grows as he ages. Well, because he has children. Right. And seeing the death of a child through the eyes of a parent is totally different, I'm given to understand. It's actually really interesting. I was having conversations with, at a a work thing recently, 
with a couple of folks who had recently become parents and they were just talking about how much different your emotional register becomes when you have kids. It colors the whole world of your emotions. So yeah, I think that Cedric's death becomes more significant to Harry when he starts to be able to imagine losing his own child in that way. Right. But now he's a child losing an adult. And right. a child a losing parent a, figure. a guardian, mm-hmm. right. So at the same time, though, Dumbledore, like, says a lot of the shit about Sirius that we've been saying all along. So we're vindicated. Or Dumbledore's an idiot and we're idiots. <laughs> I mean... We're just as bad as Dumbledore. It's like, really, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Because I don't trust Dumbledore's judgment all that much, which makes me feel like my own judgment has been faulty all along. Because I'm like, ugh, if Dumbledore thinks it, we must be wrong. He... He delivers some pretty real talk to Harry about Sirius. Which, it's like the timing might not be great. Yeah, it's like, dude, this just happened two hours ago. But I do think Dumbledore is using the opportunity to be like, look, you loved Sirius, and it's horrifying that you are now without him in this realm. But also, like, please don't fashion yourself after him, because he did not live his life carefully. Or with a ton of, you know, he wasn't very judicious. He wasn't very, he was smart, but he wasn't very, like... Discerning. Or safe. Mm-hmm. So I think Dumbledore is like, look, it's not that it's Sirius's fault, but, like, there are ways in which we should maybe learn from Sirius's mistakes. Right. One thing that actually, like, really gutted me about the scene right when Dumbledore gets to the office is that even Phineas Nigellus is feeling grief about Sirius. That part is really sad. When, Because Phineas is kind of making fun of him, and he's like, oh, probably running after my useless nephew. And then he's like, wait, he's dead? And then he says, I don't believe it. And then he runs away to, to like look check all his portraits and, and look for Sirius. Yeah. It's like, because Phineas is such a, like, just a cool cat, his feelings of, of disbelief and grief really hit me really that read yeah that really registered with me that's the first well. time i choked up in this chapter first of hundreds <laughs> oh well please. it's really sad it is sad so let's talk about dumbledore in general here this chapter the lost prophecy is basically one long dumbledore explains it all monologue which you found kind of boring i mean it's not boring it's kind of a boring way to deliver this much exposition but at the same time it's all information that we really really need right i'm not a good enough writer to think about a better way to deliver this it's just he kind of drones on like you couldn't put this scene in the movie no it's unfilmable because it's just it's a monologue yeah but it's an or interesting you, one. Or, you know, or they find ways to stick it in that's, like, highly truncated. Exactly. But that's adaptation. God, that would be fucking hard to do as a job. Yeah. I always look forward to these chapters because, you know, you're so curious about everything and how it fits together. This is, like, Hercule Poirot or whatever, like, explaining how he solved the mystery. Everyone on the train had a role. Well, that's they did. Actually, yes. Spoiler alert. For, <laughs> oh no! I just, guys, I just spoiled. Uh, no, don't say it. On they the won't Express. Oh no! I'm sorry. If y'all haven't read more, I, I mean, honestly, that book is just as fun whether or not you know the solution. Because, like, figuring out how it fits together. And the only reason I knew the ending is because there's a Thirty Rock episode that's fashioned after Murder on the Orient Express called. Is it called Canal Yards Project? Yeah. Yes. You had to sign your crime. <laughs> anyway. Um, 
each and every person on this train had a role. Well, that's what it's like. It is. Spoilers from Murder on the Orient Express. <laughs> they all did it. Anyway. Uh, is that a fucked up thing to do? Maybe I'll put a note at the beginning of this. Also, we accidentally give away the ending of Murder on the Orient Express. I'll, we'll put it in the episode description. Okay, fine. <laughs> so make sure. This is why you should always read the episode descriptions. Also, they're very funny and I work extremely hard on them. Do you work for like 15 minutes on them? Uh, but I work with my whole heart with for intensity, 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't work for, with my whole heart all that often, but I well, do Well, there you go. That. No, I guess you're right. All right, fine. It's like high intensity intervals for your brain. Yeah, coming up with very funny jokes about the episode we just recorded. Wow, we are off topic. That's and okay. This is a really dark chapter. We're so avoidance. We're making a this is avoid. Yeah, joik. yeah. This is avoidance. We're uh, we're really. I said joikes instead of jokes. Joikes. We're making a lot of joikes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, jokes. Anyway. So. So yeah, Dumbledore. Just talks and talks. Just lets us know. I mean, there is a lot to explain. I know, but Brother also likes to hear himself talk. So, but he's having a hard time getting through it because Harry is obviously fucking pissed. Yeah, about all of it. And Dumbledore, like, he does this, like, fucking annoying thing where he's like, if you only knew how deeply to blame I really am, you would strike me down. And it's so much drama. Is he just doing that so that... (laughs) So Harry will forgive him. Yeah. He's being such a drama queen. Yeah. But he's also totally right because everything is his fault and he should take even more blame than he is currently taking for himself. So let's go... Okay, so now we've gone in an instant... In the course of a few pages, from peak hero Dumbledore to the beginnings of truly problematic Dumbledore. Ugh. Hashtag problematic Dumbledore. Hashtag Dumbledore is trash. <laughs> Honestly. I mean, well, that's an ongoing debate that we'll have. Uh, even more so than in the past. Now. Before, it was just his HR decisions. Now, now it's his, like, really... It's his deep, ethical choices yeah his very fundamental role in the series and how it plays out is called into much more question suddenly do you see harry do you see the flaw in my brilliant plan now i had fallen into the trap i had foreseen that i had told myself i could avoid that i must avoid i don't i cared about you too much said dumbledore simply I cared more for your happiness than your knowing the truth. More for your peace of mind than my plan. More for your life than the lives that might be lost if the plan failed. In other words, I acted exactly as Voldemort expects we fools who love to act. Is there a defense? I defy anyone who has watched you as I have. And I have watched you more closely than you can have imagined, not to want to save you more pain than you had already suffered. What did I care if numbers of nameless and faceless people and creatures were slaughtered in the vague future? If in the here and now you were alive and well and happy, I never dreamed that I would have such a person on my hands. Basically, Dumbledore... I mean, frankly, he sounds like an abuser in these chapters. How so? He's continuously like making excuses for why he didn't share this like truly vital information with Harry earlier on. Which is the fact that he or Voldemort has to die at each other's hand. Yeah. Basically. Basically the prophecy says like neither can live while the other survives. Harry is the chosen one. There's this whole stuff with like Neville who might be also which like 
I honestly like can't get into that at this point. We right. will certainly because mm-hmm. Neville obviously becomes more important. But Dumbledore has known this all along. He understands all these things about Harry's life that he never told Harry. And his excuse is like, oh, I never meant to love you. And then as soon as I loved you, I knew that I couldn't like right. his ruin ex- your life. His excuse was I cared too much about you to share this information with you because I didn't want to. Which is abusive. Yeah, that's like a classic abuser thing to say. I do this because like I care too much. Right. It's also a terrible answer in a job interview. <laughs> like Harry's like, so what's your greatest weakness, Dumbledore? And he's like, I would say I just care too much. Yeah. And the thing is, that's not true because he doesn't care enough to like fix this. And maybe he couldn't. Right. But like he doesn't care enough to make sure that Harry doesn't get murdered by Voldemort ultimately. Right. So Dumbledore is, he's not great here in his justifications. But I mean, you can understand why he wouldn't want to tell an 11 year old that Voldemort's probably still alive because of this prophecy. Well, we know he's still alive because we see him in Sorcerer's Stone and that ultimately it's going to fall to Harry to like take him out. That is a lot to tell an 11-year-old who just found out about magic. magic. Yeah, and I think you're totally right. And like Dumbledore's a human being and I understand these justifications, but I just think it's pretty rich to be like, "Oh, I cared too much" when he's continuing to raise Harry like a pig for slaughter. Like, all he's doing is protecting his feelings. Yeah. All of his work is not to make sure that Harry stays safe in order to live into happy and healthy and well-adjusted adulthood. It's to make sure that Harry lives long enough that this, like, duel can, like, go down. Yeah. He's not trying to make Harry's... He's trying to make his own conscience a little bit less heavy. Right. But he's not actually trying to create a life for Harry... That will see him through to, yeah, a happy and healthy manhood. That's not Dumbledore's plan. So I just think it's kind of bullshit of him to well, be like... Dumbledore doesn't... It says neither can live while the other survives. Dumbledore doesn't know that Harry has to die. That's later on. He's starting to know that now. But he doesn't know that Harry's a horcrux But he's yet. starting to suspect that there's like some connection beyond the prophecy. Right, okay. Because he's like full on Horcruxes in book six. Yeah. Which means that he must be figuring it but, out. But Dumbledore this. doesn't know what the Horcrux is yet because they have to retrieve that memory from Slughorn. Oh. That's like the whole MacGuffin in book six. Okay, but the reason he knows that Slughorn has a memory like that is because he started figuring okay, out Okay, well he just, he suspects. Yes, he he has some inkling that it's more than the prophecy. Okay. Especially because now the prophecy's fucking broken and nothing happened. Because the whole point of this book was nonsense. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) So the other thing is, like, just in terms of Dumbledore's actions in this book alone, because I, there's so much to get into in terms of Dumbledore's actions, like, large scale, like, all the stuff with, well, for example, there's this part where he's like, oh, yeah, I mean, I knew that it wasn't going to be super fun to live with your aunt and uncle, but you showed up to Hogwarts when you were 11 and, like, you were fine. And Harry's like... Reasonably healthy. He's like, oh, I lived in a cupboard, bro. Harry's like, I truly and deeply was not fine. Like, fuck you. Yeah. (laughs) I have never been fine. I was, like, not dead, which is not the same. No. And he knew. Dumbledore says he knew that his life would be horrible. He did. And that's the thing. He cares about Harry only insofar as he doesn't want to be like 
on the receiving end of Harry's, he doesn't want to watch Harry be in pain like in front of him, which is why the only thing he won't do is fucking tell Harry what he needs to know. <sighs> okay, so there's that. He doesn't want to sit there and see Harry suffer, but he doesn't mind if Harry is suffering like out of sight. There's also Dumbledore not teaching him legitimacy personally. Oh, which is his biggest mistake. Do you think like, so? Well, because well, he was afraid. I mean, he was afraid that... But Voldemort would spy on him through Harry. Dumbledore knows Harry and Snape can barely be in the same room. Right. Like, you cannot expect that to have gone well. And you cannot expect Harry, a teenager, to have those sort of personal fortitude and wherewithal to get over the immense hatred of an adult directed toward him. Right. Like, it's not Harry's fucking fault that Snape can't control his shit. Snape shouldn't hate Harry. Snape's an adult. Harry's a kid. And Dumbledore should have made some alternate plans so that Harry wasn't stymied by the fact that this fucking grown-up can't get out of his own goddamn way. So um, what all are we to infer about Dumbledore's character from these chapters? I think he's not actually very emotionally mature. There have not been very many relationships in Dumbledore's life where he has had to, like, wield his feelings deftly and appropriately it's very clear Mm -hmm. because he's totally fucking taken out by feelings yeah i think he clearly seems to suppress his feelings in most cases right and And in this case he did not i mean and this to me is interesting he's more like voldemort than not he is it's like the photo negative alienated from his background alienated from a lot of sort of like fundamental elements of self because he's so Powerful and concerned with, like, wider fights and truths that he doesn't do a lot of, like, Dumbledore work. He's incredibly powerful and not that good at, like, relationships. Yeah. He's not great at just, like, being a person around other people. His best friends are definitely the paintings. Which is sad. Or does he have a best friend? Does Dumbledore have a best friend? I guess Fox. Is a bird. Kind of. Is a bird. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Maybe Minerva, but they yeah. don't seem to talk. He doesn't seem to confide in anyone. I, he doesn't confide in anyone, and neither does Voldemort, confides, and that's so alienating. He confides in a wash tub. Yeah, even then, and Basically. it can't, he just doesn't ever get feedback. Right. Like, this is such a weird sort of, like, professional development thing to say, but, like, one of the most important things that you can get as a human being in the world is someone to, like, reflect yourself back to you. Right. Which is why a Harry already, as a 14-year-old, who's driving me nuts a lot in this book, but he's a better person than Dumbledore because he has people in his life to, like, reflect himself back and he can grow from that like, in ways Dumbledore is incapable of growing. To call him on his bullshit. Basically. Yeah. Ron and Hermione can be like, get it together. And wow. nobody does that for Dumbledore. So Dumbledore is just out here all alone, making bad choices for good reasons, and nobody can tell him, like, hey, think a little harder. Dumbledore, I like Dumbledore's arc in general. Oh, just I do from too. A, from a writing, from like a storytelling perspective. Totally I think, agreed. I think it's a lot of, it's better than Gandalf's arc, I would say. Gandalf it's- like pretty much stays the badass, like, dad wizard, and like... Frodo never really takes him to task for, like, putting him through, like, just endless horrors. And I, I mean, to get into some Lord of the Rings here, I like that Harry gets properly fucking pissed at Dumbledore in these chapters. Because we've kind of been waiting for it. Because we've been pissed on Harry's behalf. 
and now Harry is. So I like I like that Rowling goes there, and I like that Rowling has like the integrity to like tear Dumbledore down a bit after building him up. I totally agree with that. Harry's rage at Dumbledore is deeply cathartic in these yeah. scenes. So I that to me that to me is props to JK. I totally agree with that. Let's talk a little bit about the actual prophecy. Okay. This occurred to me with the prophecy. Let's say Lucius and company had managed to snag this fucking thing, delivered it to Voldemort. What the fuck was Lovo going to do with this information? He's like, oh, okay, I have to kill Harry Potter. I was trying to do that anyway. <laughs> it's a really dumb it's, this would, weapon. I can't, see, I can't see how this would help Lovo at all. It helps us understand what the fuck is going on in these books. But, right, but it's a really, it's an incredibly tangled and, like, tortured way to insert this information into the plot this, by making Lovo obsessed with getting it. The snow globe would be useless to Lovo. He'd be like, oh, uh, fuck, interesting tidbit. It may have been Neville also. Like, but, what like, the fuck? It's not He would have been so pissed if he'd got this prophecy. He would have been like, this is what we've been doing for 500 pages? Well, God. I mean, that's kind of how I felt. I felt like <laughs> this is what we've been doing for 500 pages. Like, Jesus Christ. Okay. I do like, I do like that he's obsessively searching for like a scrap of information and not an actual weapon. Like a gun. Like, I like the idea that it's a prophecy, that it's this like piece of just crucial intel. But yeah, totally. But I don't agreed. know if the payoff's there. Hopefully someone disagrees and... Lays out why this is actually awesome because well, I like nothing more than when people do that. There are uh, aspects of this that are fucking awesome. Yeah, it has this like Greek tragedy ring to it. Yeah, that's cool. Where like it's kind of like Oedipus, where like trying to undo it like makes it worse or like fulfills the prophecy. Right. Yeah. So like by attempting to kill Harry when Harry was a baby. Voldemort like made Harry powerful in ways he wouldn't have been and like even Harry's like if he had just fucking waited to see like which whether me or Neville was like I don't know bigger and scarier like he'd actually probably have a head start but it's like it is it reminds me of like Oedipus and Iacosta and like killing his father like accidentally and like the whole fucking thing where it, it does have this like inexorable tragic element to it which is very like just classic, literally classic. It is. There's a, I mean, another way to put that is there's just a fuck ton of loopholes in this thing. Yeah, well, I mean, that could be read as a commentary on the nature of fortune telling and like fate and prophecy right. itself. I th so, think that's exactly what it is. Like, you know, like there's also, there are elements of choice in this that Voldemort unwittingly acts on. He makes Harry the chosen one instead of Neville. And, uh, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. And he kind of screws himself by being really rash and acting. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like, it. Uh, sorry, it just is making me think of all these, like, all these Greek tragedies in that you can't, like, the harder you try to, like, undo fate, the more tangled up in it you become. And, right. like, you can't, which... That sort of raises for me interesting questions about, like, what J.K. Rowling thinks about, like, fate versus free will. 
that I don't super think we have time to get into here. But Well, like, this prophecy is open-ended. It just says neither can live while the other survives. It doesn't say who's going to win this struggle. Right, but it sets it up as a dichotomy. Yeah. It's also nice, just because this kind of lays out the central question that we know has been at the heart of the books all along. But yeah. now we, like, hear it said out loud. Mm-hmm. Like... Y'all, it's Harry versus Lovo, and that's how it's always been, and that's how it's always going to be. And in case anyone had any questions about whether, whether like, Harry was somehow going to, like, have to take care of this himself, now we know that yes. And now we're watching this new kind of hero's journey, where we can see that it hasn't just been sort of randomly, like, why does Harry keep being in the room when Lovo shows up? (laughs) We know that there's this epic showdown coming and we know that we have been watching our hero prepare for it and we'll watch that in a much more focused way from here on out it also just like the prophecy plus the horcruxes is like a lot it's like these two sort of things at once and harry's like has to die because he's a horcrux but he also has to die because of the prophecy but he also is the chosen one but it's also like slivers of soul it's just a lot happening Hey, logistically, so someone overhears half the prophecy and delivers it to Voldemort, and that person's, like, thrown out of the hogshead. Did Trelawney just, like, stop halfway through so they could, like, evict this guy? I don't know. That part didn't make much sense to me. Doesn't make any sense. Or he was, like, hauled out by a bouncer or... I think he was, like, hauled out while she was talking. Well, weird. Anyway. No, it doesn't make a ton of logistical sense. Another question I have about prophecies is... When someone makes an actual prophecy, are one of these globes just created? How does this get filed in the Department of Mysteries? I have no idea. No, I don't know if it, like, like the person that hears the prophecy has to, like, make a report and they, like, make... I don't know. I have no idea how this thing comes. I think because it's, it's, like, the spectral seer or whatever that's, like, in the I snow think, globe. I like the idea that one just appears on the shelf. That there's all these, like, empty shelves... See, that's cool. And then one of these just appears whenever a prophecy is made. That's right. how I like to imagine All right. it. I loved that idea that you could only retrieve it if it applied to you. I did too. But then Dumbledore can also put it in his pensive? I don't I, know. I don't know. I think it's like if it applies to you or if you heard it. Oh, okay. Like, there's like shared ownership between the the subject, the prophesier... The, like, so can Dumbledore hearer. just tell that to anyone, though? Can you just, like, leak this prophecy? And then, it, like, what if Dumbledore just gave it to, like... I don't think he could tell the it. daily he, prophet. He had to put it into the pensive and have her deliver it. Right. He didn't just say the words. No. Okay. Oh, I guess you're right. And then he Harry and then Harry watched. Harry watched Sybil Trelawney deliver it in his okay. memory. Okay. So and can't not just... anyone has access to a pensive. Well, and not everyone has access to Dumbledore with his pensive. So Dumbledore right. has okay. to present it, but I don't think he can just say just it. Just say it. This is a cool device in these books that there are, like, things you can't say for, like, magical reasons. Like, the secret keeper. Yeah. Like, creature physically can't divulge the location of the Order of the Phoenix headquarters because of uh, the incantation that was used. Or, I'm, I'm presum- presumably Dumbledore can't just willy-nilly say this prophecy even though we heard it so speaking of which let's actually talk about creature yes because yo creature plays a really complicated role in how this all goes down and i just have a lot of questions about how and whether we blame creature for his role in this well dumbledore says we shouldn't dumbledore is so i mean a little bit he sort of says we shouldn't 
He's so Kinda mealy mouthed yeah. about the whole house elf thing. He's like, oh well, like yeah, we should probably free them, but like we couldn't free this one. But like overall, I guess we should free them. It's like, no, you're either like anti-slavery or you're not. Like, sorry. To me, one of the best parts about this twist that creature was working with. The Malfoys and the Lestranges. Lestrange? I keep mispronouncing. It's Lestrange, right? Uh, You can say it however you want. All right. With the Lestranges is, it's this perfect reverse of Dobby. Right. So Dobby just drops in all the time to save the day. But with House Elves, it totally cuts both ways. Harry and no one around him suspected that this could ever happen. To them. Yeah. And it's the same... Because Creature does the same thing to Sirius Black and the Order of the Phoenix that Dobby does to the Malfoys. Absolutely. Like, Dobby finds a loophole. Uh, absolutely. Uh, or doesn't even find a loophole, really. He just breaks away, punishes himself, and delivers, like, crucial information that hurts the Malfoys and Lord Voldemort to Harry Potter. And Dobby's a hero. In Chamber of Secrets. And Dobby's a hero. And, and then Creature and Creature is capable of the exact same thing. Right, and the thing that Dobby and Creature have in common is fucking rising up against their oppressors. Yeah. And, like, I think that Creature goes to wizards who don't treat him like shit. In Creature's case, it's, like, a little different because, like, the Malfoys aren't going to free Creature. Right. Because they are still, it's like, they are still pro-enslavement generally, but they're just kind of using him in a way that Harry really isn't just using Dobby. Right. Harry wants to reward Dobby. Harry wants Dobby to be free. But it kind of, it comes from the same place. It totally does. No, it totally does. And I don't think Creature deserves a a lick of blame. I think Creature is abused. Creature's teeth treated like a non-being. Yeah. Sirius is terrible to Creature. And Creature has every right to betray him. There's no reason in the universe that I can think of that Creature should be loyal to Sirius Black. Right, except Sirius for gives him except no for like reason. all the structures that like say he should be loyal but to even him, those which are unjust. They don't apply to creature because right. structurally, creature may as well be in the household of dark wizards in terms of like how he is treated and how his life is lived. Right. Yeah. He is he is enslaved. Right. So, yeah. It doesn't matter to creature that he's working for the good guys. God, Hermione. Because are they the good guys? Well, that's yeah. The that's thing. a good the question. From creature's perspective, no, no. And the thing is, it doesn't matter who they are in terms of what his lived experience is. Yeah. Hermione is so right about the need to really eradicate this like evil in the wizarding world because it fucks them over. Mm -hmm. It like really, really sets back the entire movement against Voldemort. Yes. Which I think is so compelling. And I'm really glad JK did that. Structurally and thematically, I think it's a great move. And the reverse Dobby is perfect Mm because you imagine him like, Crack, like, appearing in the Malfoy house exactly the way Crack Dobby appears in the... And Harry sees the bandaged hands, which are excellent in the fireplace. Oh, he does. God, it's so good. It's it's a great reversal of the Dobby ex machina. Yeah. I mean, it is creature ex machina. Mm Mm-hmm. And creature, I appreciate this that, that J.K. Rowling does. Creature gets a redemption arc. I think very few of the characters that get redeemed in these books actually deserve it but i think that creature is one of the characters that deeply deserves redemption because nothing of none of this is like because he's bad it's because he's oppressed and he doesn't have room to be good or bad he doesn't have the like privilege of making those decisions because he's a slave 
he's like out to like survive poor creature i mean that guy's a bastard also (laughs) but like it sucks it's all structures creature's one of the best characters i think he's amazing so to end on a super downer note although i guess there's some hope here we have this whole very like metaphysical conversation between Harry and Sir Nicholas. I had completely forgotten that this scene happened, so I was sort of surprised when it did, obviously. Um although I'm glad this is in here because this is a good example of rolling closing a gaping plot hole, which is what are ghosts? How like do they get whole, made? This Why? This whole book is about death. Like, this whole series is about death. And we have, like, the dead flitting among the students, used as, like, basically hall monitors and mascots. But, uh. Right, I think- they're, like, comic relief right. a lot of the time. And there is this, like, gaping question of, like, hey, how do some people become ghosts? And, like,. For a series almost entirely about what death means, it is a really glancing sort of like moment of, by the way, this is how you become a ghost. Bye. I also, it's really fun. I'm not funny. It's strange that Harry has never asked any of the ghosts about this before. I would think it would be one of the first questions I would ask a ghost is, what are you? What is death? What happens after we die? But, I mean, it's interesting because she kind of points it out. That's actually fucking rude. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. And Harry Mm -hmm. doesn't, and I think this is very true to, like, early adolescence, is it doesn't occur to Harry to think about what a ghost is until he's, like, really desperate for someone to become a ghost. Yeah. Like, there's lots of things in, like, a teenager's field of vision that's, like, really significant and important and matters a lot to like their like literal existence and life and death that they just don't notice because so much shit is happening internally and there's just like it's really hard you're getting you're getting so many inputs at that age but it is interesting to watch harry all of a sudden be like wait you're dead (laughs) i think her answer is a pretty good one he will not come back repeated nick quietly He will have gone on. What do you mean, gone on? said Harry quickly. Gone on where? Listen, what happens when you die anyway? Where do you go? Why doesn't everyone come back? Why isn't this place full of ghosts? Why? I cannot answer, said Nick. You're dead, aren't you? said Harry exasperatedly. Who can answer better than you? I was afraid of death said Nick. I chose to remain behind. I sometimes wonder whether I oughtn't to have. Well, that is neither here nor there. In fact, I am neither here nor there. He gave a small, sad chuckle. I know nothing of the secrets of death, Harry, for I chose my feeble imitation of life instead. I believe learned wizards study the matter in the Department of Mysteries. Don't talk to me about that place, said Harry fiercely. I am sorry not to have been more help, said Nick gently. Well, well, do excuse me. The feast, you know. We learn that only wizards can become ghosts. That makes a little bit of sense, I guess, within the context of Harry Potter, because 
I don't know, wizards have that wizard energy or whatever it is. And that basically Sir Nick says it has to do with not wanting to move on. There's like this... He sort of paints it as a kind of cowardly act. Mm-hmm. If you're afraid of being all the way dead. If you're extreme, like, if you're just way too attached to your existence here on Earth. I don't think it's attachment. I think it's fear. Yeah. I think he paints it as people who who fear death above all else, which actually sort of tracks with Voldemort living as almost a ghost on the Earth. Right. Because you can sort of, like white knuckle it basically but you live this sort of like cursed like half existence and you lose a lot of the things that make being a human being joyful but you're so afraid of whatever comes next that you aren't able to like go all the way into that next realm so Mm -hmm. nearly headless nick like does a fair amount of pretty deep soul searching in this conversation and he's basically like yeah i'm a coward it makes him a really tragic figure it really does which is why it's so weird that they're all just like yeah, like comic characters. I mean, they all have a kind of pettiness or it's true dissatisfaction. Moaning Myrtle, uh, Cernic obviously is like just kind of fatuous. You know, fun to have around at like parties, I guess. No, but, he's uh, terrible at parties. They go to a party <laughs> with him, and he's the worst. Oh, that's true. <laughs> they go to his, his party. Day, they go to his death day party. You know, like. They are funny characters, but they're all pretty deeply sad. Well, yeah, because we learned that being a ghost is deeply sad. And Mm -hmm. then basically Nick is like, I wouldn't wish ghosthood on anyone. And you're very lucky that this person you love didn't become a ghost because it meant that they went into the next realm with like fearlessness. It's weird that the ghosts just have to like work. It is weird. It's also like, well, it, I really appreciate that the ghosts don't know what comes after death because yes. they're hanging on. Mm-hmm. They've like avoided whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, he, he's like, we're at this whole other thing, man. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're not dead, in an afterlife. But we're not properly dead. Right. And it is interesting to see very clearly that J.K. Rowling believes in an afterlife. Mm-hmm. I mean, because there's so many examples in these books of like, the dead not being completely gone, mm-hmm. which to me speaks to a belief that our souls are in some way infinite. I mean, and it's interesting because that's not actually something I believe. So there, I kind of take some like solace in reading about how she thinks about death in the afterlife. And she doesn't paint the exact picture of how she imagines it. We know she believes that limbo looks like King's Cross Station. Um... <laughs> But maybe Limbo looks like whatever. At least for Harry. Yeah, maybe Limbo looks like whatever it looks like for you. I guess mine would be Grand Central Station. I don't know. Grand Central's too pretty to be yeah, Limbo. Yeah, that's It'd true. Maybe Penn Station. Penn Station is Limbo. Ugh. Um, <laughs> but don't you think she believes in an afterlife? Or hell. Uh, yeah, I mean, clearly. Because we have a lot of instances of people being resurrected in some form or another. Although never as like corporeal. Right. Beings. Nobody comes back to life. There's no fucking Gandalf thing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of incident. There's a lot of instances of those who have passed on, like leaving an imprint or returning in some form to affect life on Earth. Yeah. So the other thing that happens is 
Harry has this conversation with Luna where, again, all of a sudden Harry's like, oh, wow, other things exist besides my experiences. And he remembers that Luna can see the Thestrals. Yeah, they have this really cathartic conversation. I'm sorry, Harry mumbled. Yes, it was rather horrible, said Luna conversationally. I still feel very sad about it sometimes, but I've still got Dad. And anyway, it's not as though I'll never see Mum again, is it? Uh, isn't it? said Harry uncertainly. She shook her head in disbelief. Oh, come on. You heard them just behind the veil, didn't you? You mean... In that room with the archway. They were just lurking out of sight, that's all. You heard them? They looked at each other. Luna was smiling slightly. Harry did not know what to say or to think. Luna believed so many extraordinary things, yet he had been sure he had heard voices behind the veil, too. Are you sure you don't want me to help you look for your stuff? He said. Oh, no, said Luna. No, I think I'll just go down and have some pudding and wait for it all to turn up. It always does in the end. Well, have a nice holiday, Harry. Yeah, yeah, you too. She walked away from him, and as he watched her go, he found that the terrible weight in his stomach seemed to have lessened slightly. I think this is a really important moment for Harry and this really transformational point in adolescence where you sort of start to realize that other people exist. Yeah. Which, that's weird to say. Which is what Phineas was talking about earlier in the book. Exactly. No, there's a lot about, like, becoming a young adult in this really, not like in our bodies are changing, but in this really profound, like, psychological, spiritual, moral way where you look, you, I remember this, you look up one day and you're like, everybody else has an inner life too. Holy shit, this is complicated. As Tolstoy wrote, you must understand there is such a thing as other people. And Harry like figures that out and he has this conversation with Luna that is this like lightning bolt for him of other people's experiences are real and can inform how I react to my own. Yeah, this is a great leap forward for Harry. This is a moment of of true growth that happens in a subtle way because he doesn't, we the reader recognize it, but the character Harry, I don't even know if he's aware that this transition has happened. He just knows that he feels a little better and it was in that moment of like seeing and hearing Luna. Well, it's a really lovely moment. Adolescence is really lonely, mm-hmm. and it is a a really complicated kind of comfort to realize that A, you're not special, but B, you're not alone. Yeah. I mean, everybody's sort of special in a Mr. Rogers way. Like, I saw the Mr. Rogers movie recently, basically. Like, We endorse it. Oh my god. I've been thinking about it ever since. It's like informed my moral universe in ways I couldn't possibly have imagined. It's called Won't You Be My Neighbor. I think it's in like kind of limited release, but if you have the opportunity it's to probably see at it. like an art house cinema near oh my God. you jesus christ it's beautiful you guys um, so i've been thinking a lot about like the inherent worth of dig- and dignity of human beings just because they are here which is why i say like everybody's special in that sense but you're not special in that like very little about our experiences as people are unique and that is 
that's less lonely and Harry feels less alone. And Luna is a really suitable person to have this with because they're not close enough to sort of like cloud his understanding of this moment. Yeah. But notably, it's a woman doing some emotional labor. (laughs) Yes. You know, he doesn't learn this shit from Ron. (laughs) No. (laughs) Anyway. Oh, God. What house would you sort Mr. Rogers into? You know, Gryffindor. Yeah? I don't think he's a Hufflepuff. I think that's an easy out. Right. I think he fought a true battle for his beliefs his entire life. I think Mr. Rogers is an unlikely Gryffindor. Fair enough. You guys have to see this movie. I cried so much. He's like the antidote we all, I mean, God, well, I can't get into Mr. Rogers, but if you guys want me to make a podcast just about Mr. fucking Rogers, like, I will do that. I could talk about him and Sesame Street forever. Sesame Street. I was more of a Sesame Street kid. Oh, I liked them equally. I love puppets, but Mr. Rogers, well, he has puppets too, different kinds, less sophisticated. But he just like believes in you as a human. Yeah. And you know that it's true. Good old Mr. Rogers. May he rest. It's the anti-Dumbledore. That guy super believed in an afterlife, speaking of which. Oh, yeah. Abs. I mean, he was a Presbyterian minister. Yep. What do you think about this wrap-up at the train station? I actually find it really satisfying. Yeah? Because it's like, we end on such a downer note. These are doleful AF chapters. It's nice to have a little bit of hope and reminder that Harry's not alone. Good to get Fred and George back. They're wearing dragon skin suits, like shocking green, like, leather jackets. Yo. It's pretty awesome. They are, they are exactly who you want to be rich. <laughs> They are making really astoundingly good choices with their newly found riches, by which I mean buying crazy looking suits instead of doing something boring like investing it, which you can't do because there's no investment. There's nowhere to invest it. So you got to buy, yeah, you got to. <laughs> Harry, Harry is the clothes. only person who's ever invested in anything in the wizarding world. Right. And he didn't even ask for a cut. Nope. Mad Eye is fantastic here. This is my favorite Mad-Eye moment. Yeah, because it's the real Mad-Eye. But even then, he's like, Uncle Vernon sort of like, for a minute, is like, oh, I can get on board with this fucker in the hat. And thinks that maybe Mad-Eye is like his main possible ally in this like scene of crazy people. And then like Mad-Eye kind of like tips his fedora back. And Uncle Vernon sees the true horror that is Mad-Eye Moody's face and is just like, oh, no. (laughs) And Mad-Eye is like, I'll kill you. (laughs) Don't think I won't. Uh, It's really good. And Aunt Petunia is very offended by Tonks' pink or purple hair, whatever color it is. It's hilarious that that's what she fixates on when it's like, this is a shapeshifter. <laughs> well, she doesn't know that. She thinks she's just some no good Nick. Some like, fucking punk. Some, like, yeah, some youth. She's a good youth. So, yeah, here we are at the end. And I find it to be, it's like a tiny bit hopeful. And Except he has to go back to the Dursleys. Yeah, because fuck Dumbledore. He's <laughs> just made this whole arrangement. He has to go for, like, at least a night. Why didn't they just have him go for a night? And then he gets to... Does that work? I don't know. It says as long as he can sort of call it home, it, like the 
charm Dumbledore used still works. Yeah, but he has to be there for the charm to work. Right. Well, anyway, I don't know. It fucking sucks that Harry has to be in this arrangement, but uh, you'd think Dumbledore could, like, maybe lean on the Dursleys a little bit more, but... Uh, well, instead, instead everyone, we get Mad-Eye. It, everyone issues a bunch of empty threats, and then the Dursleys are still mean anyway. I don't know. Yeah. This never seems to work that well. The Dursleys are bad people. Uh, yeah. But... They're just determined to be mean Watching Mad-Eye really, really menace Vernon is a truly excellent last image in this <laughs> absolutely excruciatingly depressing second half of a Harry Potter book. Yeah, man. Uh, so, like, here we are at the end, which feels kind of crazy. How do you feel about being done with this one? Um, it was an exciting book. Jesus Christ, it's all downhill from here. It was an exciting book. Um, I'm excited for Half-Blood Prince, which, if memory serves actually isn't grindingly horrible until like the last 25% of it. So, this Maybe is Maybe the last be... tenth of it. The next book is pretty chill. I don't remember Half-Blood Prince at all. At all. I have no idea why, but there is just this crater in my memory of the series. Well, spoiler alert, Dumbledore dies. I remember that scene. What is going on out there? I don't know. There's like a motorcycle. There's some birds chirping. Someone's drilling something. It's uh, like a whole thing, you guys. Uh, it's very... God, summer in New York just has a lot of sounds. <laughs> very hashtag urbanism out there. Um. Hopefully our listeners don't mind. We we don't record this in a fancy booth or anything. We don't have a soundproof booth like outgoing EPA director Scott Pruitt. He had a soundproof Yeah, he had a $43,000 soundproof booth installed to at the do EPA what? to make phone calls that his staff couldn't listen in on. What a fucking weirdo that Who guy. Who knew was. why he was doing that? Um Cuz he that's was something shady. Umbridge would put in a Umbridge basically does put in a soundproof booth. Her Fire is the only one that isn't monitored exactly. at Hogwarts. Yeah. Uh, there you go. That's my hot resistance read another book take. Umbridge just got through it or not. I don't know. She's just like the worst part of every member of that administration. <laughs> basically. She's, she's just like, she's, she's every a little male- bit Sarah yeah. Huckabee Sanders. She's like a little bit Sessions. She's actually a lot of bit Sessions. She's every malevolent bureaucrat, basically. I mean, not even just the Trump yeah. administration, but uh, anyway, though, it's pick gonna your be, faves. It's going to be really interesting for me to read this book because I I don't remember what happens in it. So this is going to be a new Quibbler experience where I'm going to be pretty consistently surprised by the plot points in this book. I remember the broad strokes. Dude, there's tribbles. Who's? Uh, not Tribbles. Those pig, there's Pygmy Puffs, which are basically just knockoff Tribbles. What's a Tribble? Tribbles, we've act, we've literally discussed this I don't remember in an all. episode. I don't remember Tribbles this. are from Star Trek, the original series. Okay, I don't remember. They, I have like, no overwhelm the Starship Enterprise. Okay, well, cool. Uh, they're just basically pom-poms. Cute. That... Her. Who's your unsung hero? My unsung hero is Ernie McMillan and the rest of Dumbledore's army who put their training to good use by cursing the fuck out of Draco, Crab, and Goyle when they attempt to hex Harry on the Hogwarts Express. Just a nice way to tie that 
loose end up also. Be like, oh yeah, also, Dumbledore's army is still a thing, and they've got Harry's back. That's, that's nice, nice to see. Uh, many of them will die in book seven. Ugh, that's, <laughs> that's hard and true. When Dumbledore's army gets real as fuck. Mine is Nearly Headless Nick, who... We talked about this whole conversation he has with Harry, but he's like, ugh, every time somebody's, like, uncle dies or some shit, a kid comes and asks me this. So Sir Nicholas is basically the closest Hogwarts has to a grief counselor. Yeah! Because apparently a lot of kids are like, by the way, like, can my granny be a ghost and, like, chill with me? And he has to be like, no, like, death is real. (laughs) That's a really hard job to ask Sir Nick to do. And he's also, like, the only approachable ghost i guess the fat fryer is probably pretty approachable but he's like but he's just probably like oh ho, 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 let's get a butterbeer instead come or, in and yeah. know me better man yeah nice yeah that was Love a deep it, christmas pull. carol reference does he say that in the real christmas carol or is that I just think so. the muppets i don't know i only know the muppet version so <laughs> I whatever mean, i think charles dickens would be happy with that yeah, man. You know, the, you're not going to, like, discuss this with the bloody Baron. He's... So scary. Too bloody. And then the Ravenclaw ghost just Rowena. chills in her tower. Yeah, she doesn't, like, hang out a lot. No. She's a little antisocial. But, yeah, Sir Nick. I guess it's another example of Dumbledore cutting down on labor costs by using ghosts. <laughs> Him and Professor Binns need paying. Yeah, he they need something, although I don't know what you give a ghost. Yeah, it doesn't need anything. He doesn't have to, like... Eat. Or sleep, or... I, I don't know Occupy what... Occupy physical space. I don't know what... How would you reward a ghost? I don't know. That's a good question. It makes... Anyway. I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. This week's episode is brought to you by Dr. Ubley's Oblivious Unction for treating brain damage. Ugh. That's what Ron has to use... To heal his, like, weird brain tentacle scars. Oh, I get it. Brain damage. Brain da- Literal brain damage uh, for external use only. <laughs> the audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. By the way, we got a lot of commentary on this from friends and listeners we don't know why the fuck Jim Dale does a French accent for Bellatrix. He it's, doesn't in book four. In the flashback, she has a normal fucking voice. It's a true and rare Jim Dale misstep. And it's weird. Inexplicable. It, did she just adopt it as like a strange affectation? Is Lestrange even a French name? Well, also, she, that's her married name. I she's know. A she's Malfoy. A, no, she's no, a black. No, she's a black. Duh. Bellatrix Black, I believe. So. You know, thank you, Jim Dale, for all of your service to this podcast, but that's a weird choice. (laughs) We are on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Quibbler Podcast, and please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Um, You're going to want to stay subscribed because, sadly, as we get to the end of this book, we're going to do a couple more episodes just kind of like wrapping things up. We got a mailbag coming up. We're going to do a movie mini. But after that, we're going to go on hiatus for a couple of months before we start book six. So we'll probably be back in the fall. I mean, you know, you can expect a couple of things from us and like maybe some special little treats here and there. But yeah, in the meantime, please interact with us however you would like. 
thequibblerpodcast at gmail.com. I mean, not however what you would like. Like, don't come to our house. <laughs> but, you know, get in touch. We read all your emails. They're great. We're going to do a mailbag episode next week and then a movie mini. So get excited for that. Thanks, amigos. I was and am the Dark Lord's most loyal servant. I've learned the dark arts from him, and I know spells of such power that you, pathetic little boy, can never hope to compete. Well, what are you then? I'm French! Why do you think I have this outrageous accent, you silly king?